Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Uh, we got a big college admissions scandal to talk about later in the show, guys. We do. We're going to be talking to Jody Godoy. She's back on the show. I mean, everybody's read about this. There's a couple of interesting... Sort of big law tendrils and some other sort of white collar compliance. Well, and Becky's a well known litigator. Well, um, I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Bill, because yeah. I wanted to ask you the Lori Laughlin Laughlin uh, part of this. I think is it's Laughlin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she is alleged in the complaint to have um, sort of presented both of her daughters as being members of their high school crew team, mm. so that they could get into uh, uh, onto the USC crew team, uh-huh. even though they do not row crew. No. Now, Bill, you rode crew, did you not? I did. Okay. How do you? I mean, this are you is offended? Just, I just, I just, no. this is like stolen valor of crew rowers. How well, do you feel about that? It is a very hard sport to pretend to do. I know. I that. feel like if, <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, there's boats involved and like rivers. Like you, like you. Well, they took. You can't pic- just. You can't just it, like put on a uniform. Yeah, like, it's not the first thing I would imagine well, appara- to just. They fake. took pictures of them on the rowing machine at the gym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, um, yeah, <laughs> not, that's not not that's, the same. Which yeah. is which is also funny because at least in the instance of the older daughter, I think she was purported to have um to be going out for a coxswain uh-huh. uh spot in which case wouldn't you have to just be like sitting in a chair yeah your your key attribute is being small yeah yeah and yelling <laughs> um well yeah i just wanted to get your take on it because i know this is like a subject that's uh that's near to your heart thanks man yeah well okay there's i mean there's there's there, there's other <laughs> and things again we've come back around to sports on the pro state podcast i know i'm to sorry which i'm I sorry here the N- silently the ncaa is all tied up in this yeah, yeah. But we have other things to talk about. We yeah, do. Yeah, we have some serious stuff to start off with. Mm-hmm. And Bill, I know you're going to bring the first story. Yeah. Um, we got a ruling out of the Connecticut Supreme Court uh, actually today. We record it on Thursdays. Um, uh, that ruled the that, that a bunch of parents of um, uh, victims of, of the Sandy Hook mass shooting could sue the companies that manufactured the um, assault rifle that was that was used by the gunman. Um it's a big deal uh, because we've talked. We talked about the Las Vegas shoot, shooting. We talked about other mass shootings. There's very limited legal recourse right. for victims of mass shootings. Um, so to have a court rule and a state supreme court rule that they are allowed to bring a case against the manufacturer of a gun, um, it's a big deal. It was a whole, it was a very novel case. People sort of wrote it off. Um, yeah, I remember. And now it's moving forward. So it's a it, it's a big deal. This ruling. Well, dig into it some more. Like what was novel about it, and how did they? get past this hurdle yeah so um just to set the scene we remember back in 2012 um guy named adam lanza shot um and killed 26 people at um sandy hook elementary school in newtown connecticut um he used an ar-15 rifle which we've seen a lot of that in in um many of the mass shootings we've seen over the years um you know featured a, a large magazine and the bullets are fired at such a high velocity that when they hit people, they basically burst. Yeah. Um, and so it, you know, we all remember it was a really, really, really yeah, big deal terrible. at the time. Um, but ultimately almost nothing policy wise came out of it. Yeah. Um, but in 2014, a group of, uh, a group of parents uh, filed a case that was aimed at holding Remington, which is the um, the company that made the the Bushmaster AR-15 at issue, um, the company that made that rifle, um, they were trying to hold them liable for what had what had happened. Um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the case was sort of written off because it's very very difficult to bring cases like this. Now, gun makers almost never really face liability, and there's been no, uh, sadly, been no shortage of opportunities for legal cases like this to proceed. Right. 
Um, why is that? Why why was that the prevailing thought at the time that it was such a long shot? So there's this federal statute that was passed in 2005 called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. Um, it basically immunizes gun makers from the normal kind of products liability that 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 they would face manufacturing a thing that hurts and kills people. Um, it, it was it was passed as a way people said that gun makers were being hit with frivolous lawsuits. Um, mm-hmm. But it, yeah, it immunizes gun makers from uh, liability based on crimes that are committed using the gun. Um, the law is not completely absolute, though. It's not a total immunity. Um, the they're not. There's a situation that's known as negligent entrustment, which is when um, a law, a gun, basically a gun maker sells um, a gun to someone that they shouldn't have or that they knew they shouldn't have. Um, it's an old tort that says you, you're not supposed okay. to give dangerous things to dangerous people. Yeah. Um, and then there's also this idea that um, another exception to the law is you can still be held liable for violating state laws about the way that you advertise and market oh, guns yeah. um, if you're, you know, violating those kind of laws. So did this suit go after both of those two sort of exceptions? Yeah, and to be clear, there are other exceptions under the law, but I highlighted those two because, yes, the okay. parents who filed this case filed them under these two. One being that the gun maker and then the gun retailer had you know, negligently entrusted this gun to Adam Lanza's mother, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- to a woman who had a son who was mentally unstable and, and was going to do something like this. Um, they also claim that that Remington, uh, you know, they they marketed this Bushmaster in such a gung ho sort of like hyper masculine uh, kind of way that it essentially encouraged mass shootings. That they were saying like use it use it against people. You know, this super wow. aggressive. It lends itself to like an aggressive use. They would say. Yeah, exactly. So that um, they argued that that violated uh, Connecticut's unfair trade practices statute, which is like I said, one of the exceptions to the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so where, what is the, you've outlined the exceptions and what they were going after. What did the Supreme Court have to say? About yeah. It? So it was, I meant to hit this. Um, it, it was tossed out by a trial court right, um, okay. for a variety of reasons, but we got to the Supreme Court today. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the ruling went in favor of the gun makers. You know, you see these headlines. There was a big, there was a New York Times push alert, I think this morning yeah. about it and, um, that it was this big win for the parents, but, um, really it was mostly in favor of the gun makers, but there was this one narrow theory that they said you can bring, bring this case. Um, so just to take it, both parts of the ruling because it was a split ruling for the gun makers they said regardless of whether you have this federal immunity you don't have a case for negligent entrustment that, yeah. that you know that it doesn't you know that there was no way that they could have known that they were selling it to a woman who then had a son who was going yeah, it to seems take like you're a couple degrees step, removed right. from yeah and they basically immediate danger and you know they, they they said if we were to say that it would make it would make it illegal to sell this gun to anyone because that you could anyone who who you sold it to could have that next step. So it just wasn't mm-hmm. yeah. close enough to make that tort work. Right. Regardless they didn't of... sell it directly to the actual shooter. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. And, and you know, that would have had a really sweeping implication if they had ruled that way. Um, but on the flip side, and the reason why people are sort of viewing this as a, a win for the parents is that the court said that the plaintiffs did have a way to sue for the way that the gun had been marketed, um, that it had been marketed in an offensive, assaultive purpose um, that, you know, specifically for, uh, quote, waging war and killing human beings yeah. um, rather than like self-defense or recreation or, or any yeah, so more. It's not like they showed a, a deer in a forest and it was about hunting or something. No, they pointed to, um, to uh, things from the pleadings and from the the plaintiffs that said, you know, that that 
that Remington had extolled the militaristic qualities of the gun, that they had they had portrayed the Bushmaster as a weapon that allows a single individual to force his multiple opponents to, quote, bow down. So yeah. they created Ugh. this this idea that 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 you were using it in this sort of macho way where the, the, the only way you could read it was that you were using it against people as opposed to legitimate recreational purposes. Yeah. Um, so uh, the they also said, and I think this is also really interesting, they said that that Remington was not immunized by this federal law. Oh, so for this okay. purpose, they did reach that question. Um, and they said, quote, Congress has not clearly manifested an intent to extinguish the traditional authority of our legislature and our courts to protect the people of Connecticut from the pernicious practices alleged. The regulation of advertising that threatens the public's health, safety, and morals has long been considered a core exercise of state's police powers. So it's, you know, that will allow the case to move forward on that case, barring a trip to the Supreme Court, which we can hit on in a second. Yeah. Um, Barring a trip to the Supreme Court, that will send it back and they will litigate those those claims against Remington. Okay, so this feels like a really big deal. What are we to make of this? What What's this going to do to the landscape of suits against gun makers? Yeah, so I mean, it obviously it only deals with marketing and advertising as opposed to the way that they sell guns mm-hmm. and to whom they sell guns, which obviously would have been a far more sweeping yeah. decision. Um but one really big thing that you saw a lot of people talking about today in the wake of the ruling was that this will could be an almost unprecedented um, look inside the gun industry at yeah. the way that the way that guns, the way that especially uh, assault weapons like this are marketed and advertised, and the way that that's done. There's never really been a a, a look on the inside of that. It, it the, never gets this far. <laughs> exactly the yeah. way that discovery in this case could right. could sure. make public. So that's a really interesting thing. And like I said. There, this will almost certainly be appealed to the Supreme Court. Whether or not this is a kind of case that they would want want to take, let alone overturn, we will see. It's never helpful to really speculate about the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. but um, that's probably going to happen before it gets back to a lower court. As we said up top, later we're going to talk to Jody about uh, some creative um, bribery uh, prosecution strategy in this college admissions scandal. But first, I wanted to talk to you guys about Sort of more garden variety uh, bribery practice and compliance. This Mm -hmm. has to do with um, the tricky business of complying with foreign bribery laws, laws that forbid companies to bribe foreign officials for business. Um, The Department of Justice made it a little bit easier for companies to comply with these laws on Friday um, by allowing uh, companies to have their employees use uh, what we know as disappearing messages services, like WhatsApp. Yeah. when you send texts and then they disappear. Um, the government had previously banned, um, you know, these things for the purposes of government compliance with bribery. I laws. thought the only people using things like WhatsApp were like teenagers who didn't want their mom to read their messages. Like, I didn't realize this was a big issue for right. corporate compliance. Yeah, you wouldn't think so. But this whole thing has to do with like, um, just to explain it, um, the steps that companies have to take in order to avoid liability if one of their employees should bribe a foreign government official. Okay. Mm-hmm. Multinational companies, you know, they have incredibly complex supply chains, they have offices everywhere. If one person just decides to do a bribe, yeah. you know, the government is within its rights to actually charge the whole company with being negligent to that regard. And the government will offer you leniency depending on how closely you've hewed to their like best practices for preventing bribery. Okay. And so there have been lots of different updates to these are the rules you at the company should have in place uh, to prevent bribes by yeah. your employees. 
One of those rules um, came out in 2017, and the government effectively said you should not like your your employees should not be allowed to use these um, what they call ephemeral messaging services. Yeah. Right, because there's no record of that, and, and you can see why. Right. The, the the point of enforcing this law is about diligent record keeping right. and knowing who you what you said and who you said it to and sure. when you said it. Um, that raised a lot of alarm um, in the compliance community because people said, you know, our there, there are people who you like it really it would conceivably apply to any text messaging service that you can delete right after. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of saying, um, you know, our employees just kind of like use these things all the time. Well, it's telling them to, to, to create sort of a squishy rule and to mm-hmm. try to do something that's sort of difficult to manage. Right. You know, having this just a we don't want you to do this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, and what I mean, what you heard from like the Chamber of Commerce, which is always trying to soften um, and like, you know, pare back these foreign bribery laws is like, look. We, we, we want to play ball with you, but you like it's not really realistic for us to tell like our hundreds of employees like stop using these text messaging services that you've been using or t- or tens of thousands of employees. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, 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 sure. Um, and so the DOJ heard those complaints, and like I said on Friday, they issued a new rule that basically said, um, okay, you know, you can keep using, you, you can allow your employees to keep using these things, but you have to do so in a way that allows you, the company, to still monitor. The data. Mm. Okay. And what that means is basically you will want to have employees, um, if they're using services like this, you have to say you're only going to do that on devices that we, the company, on like sort of company issued phones. Sure. Something that creates a backdrop that makes these temporary messages less temporary. Sure. The idea that it's even if it disappears from your phone on your WhatsApp, it's on a corporate server somewhere. Um, so that's sort of the new rule as we understand it now. So what's the what's the impact of all this? Like now that they've made this change, it seems like a lot of people were probably using some of these WhatsApp and other ephemeral yes. messaging services already. I'm a, I'm, Does this I'm a big fan much? of that euphemism, by the way, ephemeral messaging. Yeah, yeah. it feels just, very poetic just, or something. Just, just, just as a side <laughs> to, to, describe, to describe yeah. Snapchat as <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. ephemeral messaging. But, I know. So does this change much, really? Because if a lot of people are already using them, like well, what, what's the landscape now? You would think, oh, maybe it's just like a, a small sort of change. But the extent to which people pushed back on it um, would seem to be that it was going to be a big change for them to yeah. just like not do it anymore. Um, I, it, people are so, f- the, the, the chamber seemed pretty happy with the idea of like most of these people are probably messaging on corporate backed phones anyway. We're glad that we don't have to sort of say wholesale stop using these things that you've been using for years and years right. as you conduct business. Um, it's a little bit of a wonky area, but as I say, it matters a lot to these companies because if they're ever on the hook, they need to be able to say, like, look, we followed the rules that you set out for us. Having one hard set rule. You just yeah. have to, this is the rule instead of, like, please make sure that no one's doing this. Like, <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, make sure it's on a, on a company phone and all of this. Um, this is kind of emblematic of something that bubbles up in corporate compliance circles from time to time where, you know, the government is balancing its effort to enforce bribery laws against, you know, companies who are just trying to do normal business. Um, they landed on kind of a middle ground here, which is often how this stuff works out. Um, but you know, beware your use of the ephemeral messaging services if you're uh, if you're into that. A major college admissions scandal unfolded this week, 
With federal prosecutors charging more than 50 people with participating in an elaborate scam to help wealthy children get into elite universities. The alleged perpetrators included a college prep program, Division I coaches, and dozens of wealthy parents, including famous actresses, and more important for our purposes, the co-chairman of a powerful big law firm. Here to discuss the scandal is our senior white-collar crime reporter, Jody Godoy. Welcome back to the show, Jody. Hey, guys. It's been a while since we've had you on the show, and this is the perfect thing to dive into because it was all over the news and there's a ton to talk about. Um, for anybody who didn't catch this this week, can you give us an overview? Other than, you know, the, the Lori Laughlin was involved. Right. Aunt Becky was involved. That was, <laughs> right. I feel like that Aunt was the headline. Aunt Aunt a nation of TV moms yeah. uh, is, is, waiting, is, yeah. is awaiting this analysis. No, I mean, look, this is a really splashy case and yeah. also like a really big white collar news week. So I was just getting around to writing about it today. But um, what this case is, is you've had 50 people charged basically alleging this scheme that ran for what could be as much as 20 years. They, they talk about like an eight year scheme, but the guy... William Singer supposedly ran this college admissions racket, basically, Mm -hmm. where these wealthy parents were accused of paying to get their kids into these schools, either via like cheating on tests or by being styled as elite athletes when they right, actually there, didn't play anything. There were two big buckets. Those those yes, different yeah, those yeah. two different ways. The cheating cheating on the SATs was uh yeah. Yeah. And and the former federal prosecutors I've talked to say that there's really we've really never seen a case like this. Mm-hmm. It's such a huge number of individuals. It's such a unique case. I mean, usually when you think of public corruption, you think of lawmakers getting charged with taking bribes yeah. for a construction project mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. But this one also really hits home, I think, for a lot of people where, exactly. you know, we like to think that college in particular is where merit is really borne out mm-hmm. and that you get in just based on doing really well in, in your high school and getting a good score on a test. And I think a lot of people are just felt really gross about the idea that you can basically pay your way there. Yeah, this kind of does what to college admissions, what the Mueller investigation is doing to our views of our own democracy, maybe. Yeah, but, for sure. Um so it's it's a it's a really unique case, um, and it had all these high profile people, like you said, actresses. Yeah, I mean, the, former hedge fund managers. Yeah, I was saying, the, the, head of Wilkie Farr. Yeah, the most interesting sort of thing was the like type of rich person who's involved here. Yeah. And you were talking. We'll talk a little bit more about how it's a little bit of an awkward fit with what we understand to be the nation's bribery laws. In that, you know, I think everyone's a little bit familiar with the concept of like. A supremely wealthy parent making a donation to a university right, with the, like, for like five million dollars, with the understanding yeah. exactly, you put your name on some building mm-hmm. or some some uh, you know administrative whatever, and then that you have the understanding that the kid will get in. That is sort of understood to be legal. This is sort of a rung below that in terms of like wealth and status. People trying to find, as Singer himself said, like a side door right. into the university. Yes, like he says. There's the the great thing about this case, or the for the news purposes at least, is that yeah. Uh, they did this via wiretaps. So you have all these yeah. wow. long conversations between this guy and these parents laying out like exactly how things are going to go down. And he refers to that method of, you know, spending, you know, a hundred million dollars and, and giving a gift to a school and getting your kids in as the, the right back door. Yeah. And that, you know, the, the just regular route is the front door. The front door is working hard and uh, doing <laughs> yeah. well on your, t- in, in school. Right. Actually being <laughs> yeah. a lacrosse player. Right. Oh yeah. Um, or that. Yeah. Or, you know, among other things. But so it all centered on him, right? This guy Singer. He was yeah. he was running this this operation and then most all the parents were the people who were paying him to have their their kids put through and then there were also um the coaches were were people who had been bribed, right? To to falsely say that kids had been athletes. Right. Multiple yeah. coaches had been have been charged and accused with 
taking cash um, and as well as multiple uh, test administrators or proctors right. who proctors, are working yeah. with him. And there was someone who was, th- there was a guy fake taking tests, right, that directly right. worked for him. Who was working with and him. And now, to be clear, we should say, I think, right, that, that none of the schools were involved here, in, at least in their official capacity. I, none of the schools have been charged as right, such, right, right, but right. I think, you know, when you talk about defenses, that was certainly something that was brought up in the NCAA corruption trial in Manhattan mm-hmm. that, you know, the defendants there argued that the schools knew about this and therefore they weren't defrauding anyone. Obviously, those guys were wow. um, right. convicted, but, you know, well, who knows what we'll see in this case. Let's dig a little bit more into uh, one of the other characters that have surfaced in this, and that's um, a very prominent big law attorney. So right. tell me about who got swept up. So Gordon Kaplan, uh, I guess we should say um, he's a co-chair of Wilkie Farr, mm-hmm. but he's currently he was placed yesterday on administrative leave. Mm-hmm. Um, one because of, our, of this. Right. Yeah. Because of this. <laughs> yes. yes. And there's been some pushback, apparently, as to whether the firm's response was and robust enough. But uh-huh. a lot of our a lot of our, you know, our firm listeners will know who what Wilkie Farr is. But sort of just for context, for people who aren't deeply in the big law world, sort of. It's a big firm. Yeah, they're a very well-known corporate firm. Uh, they do. I mean, he in particular was known for doing multi-million-dollar deals. You know, um, handling transactions of that nature. Yeah. So he was one of the parents that was much like you know Lori Laughlin that we heard a lot mm-hmm. about, who had paid this singer guy and his company to get his kid into school. Um, what exactly did he do? Like, what kind of conversations do we have on that wiretap that you mentioned before? Right. So on these wiretaps, he's talking with Singer about how to get his daughter into her preferred school. Yeah. Um, per the indictment, he basically uh, is one of the not involved in the athletic side of it, right. but was uh, basically allegedly paid Singer seventy five thousand um, dollars for the assurance that a um, an ACT proctor or someone else would correct his daughter's. ACT test results <laughs> after the fact. There were a couple different methods there too. It was like sometimes someone else would just take the test for you, and then sometimes someone would correct your answers after the fact. That was alleged to be the case here. Um, yeah, and but, I think some yeah. of that was because some of these parents, um, there's there's some indication here that some of the kids didn't even know that they went off to take yeah, a test, that's the yeah. and they maybe knew something fishy was going on, but they I it's mean, not like they just didn't take a test. Yeah, and I mean, you referenced the wiretaps, Amber, and um, it, it's been in the news, and like a lot of the more colorful parts of the indictments are elsewhere in the news. If you haven't read it, it's like it's pretty great, just yeah. in that it, it follows the track of they clearly got Singer to flip, and then it's like my it's it's such a great like pattern you see in all the conversations because he's clearly done it before, and he calls the parents and he's like. Remember when we did that illegal thing before? <laughs> wouldn't, yeah. it be, wouldn't it be cool if we tried to do that again? <laughs> and so, um, but uh, Kaplan, the lawyer, uh, the Wilkie Farr attorney's um, comments on it are pretty, um, pretty eye-opening, especially since you know we talk about corporate lawyers all the time, and he is a a, a, a big shot in that uh, in that circle. Um, this, these are just a few of the uh, of the selections. This is him talking to Singer as they're talking about trying to uh, doctor this test for his daughter. So again, and keep in mind, I am a lawyer, so I'm sort of rules-oriented. There's no way any trouble comes out of this. Nothing like that. A couple sentences later. It's just, to be honest, I'm not worried about the moral issue here. I'm worried about the, if she's caught doing that, you know, she's finished. So some interesting... um, You couldn't script that better. Excerpts. Well, again, because we talk about the the status and sort of like... um, 
you know, the stature of like these prominent attorneys. Yeah. And in this one case, you know, this is like a guy who is a, is alleged to have kind of thrown all of that stuff yeah. uh, out the window for the benefit of his daughter. So these are some of the we've gotten through some of the like splashy facts here. But let's you know, we brought you on because we wanted to hear sort of your perspective on what happens in this case going forward from a criminal law perspective. Yeah. What, you know, what are the interesting wrinkles? It's obviously a very interesting set of facts, but what are the interesting wrinkles in terms of this being a criminal prosecution? Right, yeah. So some of the particular features of this case is that, well, first of all, the parents were not charged in an indictment. There were, there were, there's a mix of indictments, informations, and complaints. Yeah. Those are different mechanisms by which to charge people. The parents were all charged in this one giant 200 plus page complaint, mm-hmm. which is a very unusual move mm-hmm. from what I hear. And when I've been talking to people, the strategy they think might be at play here is that, you know, you charge these folks and you kind of expect some of them or are working on some of them to, to plead uh, guilty. And it may not be, and when you charge them by complaint, you don't have to necessarily stick to the exact charge that is in the complaint like you would in an indictment. Because mm-hmm. in an indictment, you would have taken a whole grand jury and shown them everything yeah. right. and they find the facts and, and they indict someone. But here, because they've charged it by complaint, they can now enter into negotiations and they may end up, you know, dropping these charges and charging them and having them plead to something else. Um, so that's so that's the use of the complaint is to try to leave yourself that leeway. That's what the people I've spoken to think yeah. might be at play here. Yeah. So one of our other reporters, um, Diana Novak Jones, wrote a really interesting story yesterday um, talking about the the actual charge that's being brought against these parents, this honest services fraud. Could you sort of walk us through the the nuances of? Yeah, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, I mean, it's a little it's a little strange to me and to some of the attorneys that I've spoken to. It's actually conspiracy to commit honest services fraud and con- slash conspiracy to commit mail fraud. Okay, mm-hmm. so the honest conspiracy we all know what that means. Mm-hmm. Basically, honest services fraud is this statute that uh, prosecutors have been a little bit hesitant to use since the Enron case that got thrown out years and years ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, where the Supreme Court was like, this law is very, very vague. But instead of saying this whole law is unconstitutional, we're just going to say that you should only use it in straightforward bribery cases. Mm-hmm. Oh. But, you know, the most straightforward bribery cases, really, when you think about it, are the ones that involve public officials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you don't often see it used in a corporate setting or a, a private setting where you have someone paying bribes to to get a personal benefit rather than like a did anybody you talk to give any indication about why they would go for this law that has this sort of squishy problem people are are really actually scratching their heads on this one although i meant as i mentioned uh these honest services fraud charges are part of the complaint so if so it could change things change yeah they well you know and was it for a lack of other ways to charge these parents i mean no it wasn't that's the interesting thing um you could you could have charged them. They could have charged them many in many ways, um, but this is what they landed on. And then, in, in addition, you know, there's the other pieces of the case against the coaches and against the proctors, and um, and those are those those involve different charges. They actually involve racketeering charges, yeah. which Preet Bharara himself said on his podcast this morning was like a big deal. Um, the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office, though, you know, when you think about Boston. You might think about a certain type of crime. Yeah. Um, they've got experience with mafia. Sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, talked about the departed on the show two weeks ago. We, we did indeed. <laughs> yes. 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 So you guys know, you know, those Boston prosecutors, they know their way around the racketeering statute, mm-hmm. and they've actually been bringing racketeering cases in the last few years in white, in sort of a white collar context. They had a meningitis uh, pharmacy uh, case. They had right now they have this case against 
uh, these INSYS executives. Yeah, oh, yeah. we talked about that on the show mm-hmm. too. So, um, you know, they that is also it also presents challenges, but you know, it does allow you to bring in older evidence, and yeah. it is it does make the case more. Um, some of the penalties potentially more serious. Yeah, Diana's story got to this, and I know you'll be filing on this um, later this week, but the idea of, and getting back to the honest services fraud, of the idea of, like, when you charge a government official, um, you know, the, 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 like, threshold there is about that they, they have a duty to the public to, like, look after the public interest. And if they're accepting bribes, obviously they're, you know, in violation of that public interest. I think, like, the question that this comes down to a lot is, like, sort of what duty does do the does a university have to make sure that it's... Yeah. It seems sort of, like, on its face, like, you should say yes, like, you should have admissions practices that are on the level. Yeah. But, it's, but it seems to be something of, an, uh, of a tricky fit with, the, with this kind of, like, yeah, general commercial bribery theory, right? It gets complicated. It's, yeah. I've been told it's a huge gray area um, in the law. So, you know, we'll see. And as one lawyer assured me today... Um, you know, there's going to be plenty of legal challenges to this case from the parents' side. Well, yeah, we, we, we know, we know they have lots of, of money to uh, to pay for <laughs> various things. So. That's true. Um, not, and, and as you say, there will be more litigation, um, and we've already seen some of it. There's been a couple of tranches of new sort of different types of lawsuits even just in um, the couple of days that this has been out. So I saw today there was a couple of Stanford uh, graduates. Or Stanford is one of the schools that was implicated in this right. along with whatever, USC, Yale, uh, a couple Wake of other Forest. Days. Yes. So, yeah, there was um, a long list. Tons of schools. Yeah, so there a couple of Stanford students that sued um, uh, for a bunch of money. I, I don't as you say, Bill, I don't even like to like parrot down. It was a class action, too. Like it. It's yeah. class action basically saying that like um, the value of their Stanford degrees will now be called into question as they enter the workforce because right. they will be perhaps perceived to have gotten in, not on right. merit, um, which is an interesting theory. Um, sort of more pressingly, there were also parents of of kids who applied that this is the more the cleaner fit kids who applied to these schools were rejected even though they had great resumes saying like you didn't do this correctly yeah. um so yeah. i think you know. the stanford students are also alleging that they didn't get into yale and i think usc yeah yes and they had paid the fees but you know they were kind of ripped off because had they known that there was this side door you know i was kind of it's it's a really interesting theory it's mm-hmm. a great dig at uh at you know at at Stanford, it's like we we really wanted to go to USC and we had to settle for Stanford. Classic Stanford is the safety school. You know? <laughs> well, I think there's going to be so much to watch in all of this. I feel a little smarter now that you've explained the actual legal mechanisms going on so far, Jody. Thanks for coming. Thank you. That'll wrap up our show for this week. Yeah, I um, I'm actually so offended by what's come out in the news. I've I've decided I'm gonna I'm gonna retool my own college application because I bet I didn't get a fair shake. But a lot of this stuff. when you get into it, are you gonna do all of your messaging with whoever you're talking to to retool on WhatsApp? Only ephemerally. Yeah, I mean it's fine. <laughs> uh, and um, I'm gonna go to a gym and photograph myself on some apparatus as evidence of my sparkling athletic career. It'll be fine. I it's, like it's how we've brought it all together, Alex. I'm, yeah. That's what I appreciate here. I'm just going to start taking SATs for, for wealthy teens. Yeah, that's the real money is. Honestly, I'm 31, going on 32. I think I'd be much better at it now. <laughs> you, you'd be surprised, <laughs> you though. You never know. <laughs> all right. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Jody Godoy, and contributing reporters, Diana Novak-Jones, Aaron Leibowitz, 
Haley Konath, and Emily Field. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. And if you like it, please leave us a review. It definitely helps other people find our show. Thanks, and see you again next week.